to the Actually Autistic Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Onstad, and today is going to be a little bit different kind of an episode. I'm going to be reading an essay by Jane Meyerding called Thoughts on Finding Myself Differently Brained, which was written in 1998, which kind of blows my mind. I wish I had found this article then, but I'm really happy to have found it now. I asked Jane if she'd like to be a guest on the program, and she declined. She's not interested in talking on a podcast, which is totally fine. But I did ask her if it was okay if I read her essay online, and she said that that would be perfectly fine and that she would even enjoy that. So I'll be reading that in just a little bit. I think you're really going to enjoy it. In the meantime, I have a few announcements. One is that I'm finally at the end of all those backlog of episodes that I needed to edit before I could publish them. So I'm really excited. I'm going to get to start doing the interview process again, which, you know, is obviously the fun part. I mean, I I really honestly enjoy all of it. And I really enjoy getting to re-listen to these conversations that I had with people because, you know, when you're in the middle of them and they go by so quick, sometimes you don't always remember all the cool things that the person you were talking to said. And so it's a real treat for me to be able to revisit these when I'm editing. All that said, uh, I'm looking forward to doing some more interviews. And if I have contacted you in the past about doing an interview, you'll be hearing from me again very soon. It is currently the beginning of August of 2019. I'm happy to say that I have moved out of the laundry room and into my very own little podcast booth built by my husband and myself here in the Enchanted Basement, and hopefully you can hear the difference in sound quality. I've got new microphones and a mixing board, lots of fabric on the walls. It's pretty cool if I do say so. Very exciting. Yesterday, I got interviewed by another podcast, which was really fun. It's a podcast that's based in England called, appropriately enough, The Autism Podcast. And Chris and James interviewed me for, I don't know, an hour or so. And it should be out, they said, sometime October, November, December. It's a great podcast, and I think you should all check it out. Again, that's The Autism Podcast. And it's available anywhere you can get all your other podcast needs met. I'm also very happy to report that we got a transcript sent in by a wonderful volunteer, Christina Lachois. I hope I've pronounced your name correctly. I apologize if not, Christina. But we are incredibly grateful for your transcript of the Dr. Wen episode, which I think... I think it's episode number three. Anyway, it's Dr. Wen, and she said it was one of her favorite episodes, and I agree. I loved talking to Dr. Wen. So if you were hoping to get a transcript, then definitely check that one out. And uh, we'll have more in the future as more kind people step forward to help get these episodes down in writing so that even people with auditory issues that prevent them from listening to a podcast can still get the benefit of the interviews if they make it over to the website, which is the Actually Autistic Podcast website. And I've noticed that quite a few of you are starting to join the Actually Autistic Podcast Facebook group, which is a fantastic way to always get your Actually Autistic Podcasts if you are not subscribed to an RSS feed 
don't go through a podcast catcher for some reason. And people have lots of reasons for not using a podcast app. So you can absolutely get it online. But definitely the best way to make sure you get it is to go and join the Actually Autistic podcast Facebook group. Now, there are three questions. When you go to join, please answer those questions. And they're very basic questions, really kind of just designed, first of all, to keep out robots. And secondly, to make it clear that it's a public group. So everybody can see if you join, everybody can see if you make any comments, or even just like a post, it's going to be visible to everyone you know. And not everyone is really out necessarily about being autistic. So I like to caution people that way. It's also not a support group. It's not really a place to post personal details and things like that. Again, you know, because it's a public group, anybody can see what you're posting. And so it's not appropriate to post those kinds of personal details. So uh, all that aside, (laughs) you get to see my silly memes And I always pin the most recent episode of the podcast up at the top of the page. So if you're wondering if you missed one, you can go check it out. And if you hit the announcements tab, then you can go back in time and see all the podcast episodes because I post them all as announcements so that we don't lose them. And I want to thank the Open Goldberg Variations for providing the beautiful music that I use throughout the show. That was played by Kamiko Douglas Ishizaka, and it's a wonderful project where it was crowdsourced via a Kickstarter to fund the Goldberg Variations in their entirety as a public domain project in the public domain. So by all means, check it out. If you enjoy the beautiful piano pieces at the beginning and the end of the podcast, that's where I got them, and you can hear more for free. All right, on to the essay. Thoughts on Finding Myself Differently Brained by Jane Meyerding. Here's a note that she added in 2002. Since writing this essay in 1998, I've come to believe that the categorization of people into separate boxes labeled Asperger syndrome and autism or high-functioning autism is seriously misleading. I prefer to identify myself now as autistic, period, rather than AS. But since this essay shows part of the path by which I reached where I am now, I have not altered it to match my current, as of today, but always subject to change, thinking on the matter. For more on this topic, see the link on my main page to The Great Why Label Debate and or click on the Defining Autism versus AS on the snippets page. And by AS, what she means is Asperger's. Now, even since 2002, AS now means autism syndrome or autistic spectrum or all kinds of things. So, you know, (laughs) it's come all the way around and AS is a, a perfectly acceptable term by almost anybody in the autism community. Now, all of this is posted on Jane's site, which is a wonderful URL, planetautism.com. So if you go all one word, planetautism.com, then you will find this essay and many others. Jane's a very talented writer and a brilliant individual. And now here's the essay. I used to think all people were alike at the core. Each of us was unique, of course, but 
unique with an awful lot in common. Various forms of damage coming from a wide variety of directions and at different speeds could damage a person so much that she would lose track of this basic truth. But whether this person or that acknowledged it or not, the truth remained. Why else would the feeling be so nearly universal? Do not do unto others that which you would not have done unto yourself. What goes around comes around. If I cut you, do you not bleed? Despite all subsequent writers and challenges to that precociously adopted belief, I continue to see some substantial portion of it as logically unassailable. We humans who are alive today are members of the same single species evolved over millennia on a single planet in an unimaginably vast universe. How can we not see each other as more alike than different? And that for some people, the simple fact of kinship is held to be either non-existent or irrelevant, not to be taken as a basic guide for behavior, continues to strike me as evidence of damage rather than evidence of a potentially legitimate alternate point of view on the subject. In 1979, an article I'd written the previous year about the intersections between feminism and nonviolence and anarchism was reprinted in WIN, a national magazine of nonviolent activism. The responses I received as a result caused me to consider seriously a modification in my one basic model theory of humankind. I had written that the willingness to take personal responsibility for the consequences of one's actions and inactions is basic to pacifism, feminism, and anarchism. In order to do that, I said, we must guard against the subtly violent dynamics which collectivity often engenders. The seeking individual, I implied, has a much greater chance of finding and holding to the truth than has any formal organization. Therefore, personal, individual integrity must be the basis for action, rather than, for example, loyalty to the group, theory, or dogma. The responses I got to that article, which had a much broader focus, all took exception to this single point. They tended to say something along the lines of, I really like the article, but you're wrong about individuals being better than groups for finding the truth. I was totally apolitical until I joined dot dot dot. Only in the context of the group was I able to begin to understand the kinds of things you wrote about in your article. Individuals are really self-centered. It's being part of a group that socializes us. That conflicted so entirely with my own experience that I had to come up with my first major division in humankind. Some of us are solid core, I decided, and some of us are hollow core. The hollow cores need outside help to find the proper center of gravity that will allow them to orient themselves in society. If these terms bother you, please think about it again after you get to footnote number six. I promise I'll read footnote number six to you later. My picture of humankind grew more complicated over the years as I realized more completely how different experiences can give people different ways of thinking. Living as a lesbian gave me a lesbian eye view of the world, which enriched my ability to understand the perspectives I read and heard about from people with life experiences vastly different from my own. But despite the twin but opposing claims of postmodernist deconstructionism and post-leftist essentialism, Hollow versus solid cores again, by the way. I managed to hang on to my belief in the oneness of us all on some deep evolutionary level. Then, cruising an internet group about Tourette's syndrome, an idle search of information about some of my more carefully hidden peculiarities, I came across an article someone had posted on another subject altogether, Asperger's syndrome. 
I read that article and saw myself described more clearly than I'd ever imagined possible. Here was the explanation for puzzling incidents dating back 40 years or more. I did a Medline search and probed the resources of the Health Sciences Library at the university where I work. With every new journal article, my discovery was confirmed. It was like finding feminism all over again, only more so. Apparently, disparate pieces of the puzzles, the puzzle of my life, my experiences with other people, my inability to fit in various situations began to fall into place, making sense for the very first time. I was surprised to find myself moving into the realm of neurology, but then I'd never been satisfied by the usual, the mainstream, explanatory schemes, which tend to rest heavily on some brand or other of psychology or psychologizing. Psychological explanations have never worked well for me. I could see them working for other people, but when I tried to use them on myself, I always felt the result to be a makeshift device, more for show than function. On the other hand, I also realized that politics couldn't explain everything. The personal is political, notwithstanding. I was delighted some years ago to discover moral philosophy as another way to think about humans and our behavior. It felt much more true to me, and true for me, than psychology ever had. But now, here came neurology, and the possibility that my brain really was different. If my life matched the descriptions in these articles, then apparently I had a brain that was built to a somewhat different design than the norm. This was something I had to know more about. Did it mean I was wrong to believe all humans are basically alike? If I could understand my life for the first time, only by understanding how my brain was different from the majority of brains, how much did I really have in common with all those neurotypicals out there, compared to whom I'd been judged inadequate so many times? Going online. I am now a member of four online groups that have played and continue to play an enormous role in helping me learn about myself from this new angle. One of the groups is specifically for people with prosopagnosia, face blindness. Two are for people with a personal interest in what it's like to live with Asperger's syndrome. And one, my cyber home, is for people who have felt marginalized by neurologically based differences. Like a lot of ACs, autistics and cousins, I find myself able to enjoy community for the first time through the internet. The style of communication suits me just fine because it is one-on-one, -on -one, entirely under my control in terms of when and how long I engage in it, and, unlike real-life encounters, allows me enough time to figure out and formulate my responses. In real-world encounters with groups, even very small groups of people, I am freighted with disadvantages. I am distracted by my struggle to identify who is who, not being able to recognize faces, worn out by the effort to understand what is being said, because if there is more than one conversation going on in the room, or more than one voice speaking at a time, all the words become meaningless noise to me. And stressed by a great desire to escape from a confusing flood of sensations coming at me much too fast. What's more, I must assume that most or all of the people around me are neurologically typical, and I therefore feel compelled to hide or disguise ways in which I am different from those norms. Remember I said I was reading a news group for people with Tourette's syndrome. The reason I went there was to find out more, if possible, about what I was calling my need to decompress. After every social encounter, from interactions with coworkers on the job to political fundraisers to conversations with store clerks, 
I go through a period of what seems to be a kind of letting off steam. I wait until I am alone, and then, when I am able to relax my shell of control, I twitch and vocalize. My hands jump around, flying this way and that, or gesturing elaborately about nothing. Meanwhile, my voice speaks nonsense. I say my voice speaks because the words are involuntary. My conscious, deliberate mind is not involved. I don't know what I will say until I hear myself say it. Occasionally, I discover that I'm not as alone as I thought I was. The apparently deserted street is inhabited by a man crouching down to inspect the tire of his car. And I wonder, for the rest of the day, what he thought when this literally jerky middle-aged woman walking by all alone suddenly barked out, I don't love you, or elaborate retirement options, or 13 purple penguins, or whatever phrase that non-voluntary portion of my brain happens to be using for decompression that day. Sometimes it's nothing more exciting than no, 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 repeated until I can stop. Online interactions don't build up the pressure in me that requires this kind of release. I've never risked a chat room visit. The whole point for me is to keep virtual reality different, not more like real-time interactions. That's just one part and far from the largest part of why I value my online groups. With other ASAC people who are available to me online in a way that they can never be otherwise, I can be open about the way I am, and I can explore the reasons why. I can find commonalities that help me understand myself and my own history. One thing I find particularly interesting is the way we have tried to explain ourselves in the past. Some of us have accepted labels like neurotic or even schizophrenic. All of us have felt like failures again and again, simply because we didn't act or react or behave or develop the way people are supposed to. For example, many of us did not follow the normal sequence of physiological, mental, and emotional events that are supposed to mark adolescence. As one man put it, he didn't come online sexually until he was in his middle 20s. A close friend of my mother persuaded her to send me to a psychiatrist when I was in high school because I wasn't growing up the way a normal girl should. I continued to have no interest at all in my appearance, in clothing and makeup or in boys. Fortunately, my good manners and obvious maturity impressed the psychiatrist and I came up with my own non-psych explanation for my differences. I was a lesbian! My later discovered differences from people with whom I tried to work politically, activist politics, not electoral, were explained in a similar fashion, I was an anarchist. I have come to see how right I was in those self-labelings, despite the fact that I am as different from neurotypical lesbians and neurotypical anarchists as I am from neurotypicals in general, and in the same ways. Lesbianism and anarchism are true for me in that they contradict major institutions and assumptions in society that have been trying to contradict me, and of course a great many other people, since the day I was born. I've been calling myself a non-aligned anarchist for decades now in an attempt to express both my attachment to anarchist beliefs and my inability to be or feel part of any formal or informal group, even if the basis for that group was anarchism. Similarly, I could describe myself as a non-aligned lesbian. The tagline, diagonally parked in a parallel universe, comes to mind at this point. Imagine my surprise then when I realized I was able to feel aligned with this disparate group of individuals joined together by neurological differences. 
It is a select group, of course, and that is frequent criticism of online culture. Only those with access to a computer and an internet connection are represented in cyber world. Seeing the resulting population as white and middle class is wrong because it erases the presence of everyone else who is there. Those who are of color and those who have achieved access without middle class status or security. But it's true. We are a select and self-selected group. For some, that self-selection was the result of great sacrifice, making the internet a priority over other necessities because it's the only source of vital information and support. My own road was easier. I got a home computer years ago in order to co-produce a lesbian feminist publication, and I've been reaping the benefits ever since. Okay, this is Rachel taking a little break in the narrative here because for some of you, the idea that being online meant that you were a really privileged part of the culture in the United States probably just seems ancient and hard to fathom, (laughs) but it was true. Uh, Being able to be online was something that only people who could afford to do or had the technical know-how and were able to do it could do. So that's what that paragraph's about. She is acknowledging that her ability to participate in these online communities was because she did have the privilege of having the technology to do so. And now we can all be online. Yay! (laughs) Back to the essay. As lots and lots of people are finding out, The internet gives us access to a vast pool of resources, the experiences of individual human beings. Some of them are off the wall, and some of them are playing games. But I remain amazed at the way we are able to make of certain cyberspace neighborhoods a place where we are peers learning from one another. The anarchistic potential of the internet has been noted often before. What's especially clear in the groups where I have been hanging out is how the internet can empower individuals. That is, how individuals coming together through the internet can increase each individual's power by sheer access to information. And it's real information, not theory. There is no medical practitioner on the planet who has access to more information on autism than I do, because I am an active participant in daily explorations of what it's like to be autistic. Explorations illuminated by hundreds of years of hands on experience. I refer, of course, to the accumulated thought over lives of all the adults in these groups, plus all the histories of all the AS children whose parents have turned to the internet for answers, knowledge not forthcoming from the experts. One hazard I see in participation in online groups of this kind is that the thrill of discovery, the rush of empowerment in an area of our lives where we felt especially helpless, and the comfort of a community focused on a mutual concern may cause us to make this focus a larger part of our lives than, perhaps, it deserves. This may be a hazard with its own natural history, though. Just as the newly converted are always the most radical believers, those who have been around a while usually attain a more balanced perspective. Perseveration is always a risk, a potential for exaggeration or distortion. But it can also be a path to richer understanding, deeper knowledge. What does it mean to be different? And why does it matter? I used to think I was like everyone else. Now I think I am different from most people, including most of the people with whom I share more or less identical demographics. My brain works somewhat differently from most brains, from normal brains. 
What's more, my brain works consistently enough along the lines described by the diagnosis Asperger's syndrome that I feel confident in describing myself by that label. My confidence rests not only on my own investigations and observations, but also on the feedback I have received from others who are familiar with the way an AS brain functions. Some of these people have been diagnosed officially as AS, others as HFA, high-functioning autism, and others with a grab bag of labels over the years, including PDD-NOS, pervasive development disorder not otherwise specified. And then there are those of us who, like me, are self-diagnosed and peer-confirmed. What we have in common is the experience of feeling, on a very deep level, like an alien in human society. This has been my experience since I was a small child and couldn't understand the others of my age with whom I was lumped by school and custom. They did and said and wanted things that were inexplicable as far as I was concerned. I was a quiet, passive child who didn't get into much trouble. At home, I got along fine with my family, all older than I, and I could enjoy being with adult friends of my parents. But kids my age were foreign to me. As I grew up, I learned to behave, quote, normal, unquote, to a fair degree, although I was always much more successful in my passing with adults than with age peers. Becoming socialized as, quote, normal, unquote, when you're not, can lead to a particular form of double consciousness. One online friend put it this way. I wonder what I would be like if I was raised in an Asperger world instead of a, quote, normal, unquote, one. How much normal have I taken on artificially? How many of my complex problems derive from having two personalities, my genuine AS person and the person I learned to be from mummy and society? I'd like to write a book about a world where being Asperger is the norm. How odd others would seem. The others are sublimely unaware of their own oddities as seen by ASIs, but quick to detect the odd in us. Hence the early learned habit of appearing as normal as possible. My boss and my friends may think it strange that someone as intelligent and capable as I am turns so clueless now and then, but they get over it. They never seem to see the pattern inscribed by my lapses. However, unless I come out with it, I've had to explain to a couple of people at work that they must not be so courteous and collegial with me. When they bury their instructions with an abnormal amount of polite chatter, I am unable to hear what they are telling me. They think they have conveyed what it is they expect me to do, but they have been speaking in a language my brain doesn't understand. This has led to some unpleasant surprises on both sides. When they discover a week later that reliable old Jane didn't do what she'd been asked to do because she'd had no idea she'd been asked to do anything at all. Among my small store of friends, the surprise is more likely to be over something I can't figure out how to do or something I do in a way that seems a weird second choice compared to the way that appears patently obvious to them. When a smart person has no, quote, common sense, unquote, it may be because her brain is wired to a less common pattern. Most of the ways I'm different from the neural norm can be disguised as eccentricities. Even my need for routines, rituals, sameness, and spending 95% of my time alone can be seen as within a broadly defined range of normality, partly because I am careful to hide much of my life even from those close to me. In fact, many of us work so assiduously for so many years at appearing normal that we become unable to manifest our AS selves sufficiently for our AS-ness to be credible for outside observers. How does this happen? 
Try reading the following excerpt from John Stuart Mill's The Subjection of Women, keeping in mind that normality has great authority in this culture, an authority wielded most often unconsciously by everyone who can meet the physical and neurological norms. It often happens that there is the most complete unity of feeling and community of interests as to all external things, yet the one has as little admission into the internal life of the other as if they were common acquaintance. Even with true affection, authority on one side and subordination on the other prevent perfect confidence. Though nothing may be intentionally withheld, much is not shown. The truth is that the position of looking up to another is extremely unpropitious to complete sincerity and openness with him. The fear of losing ground in his opinion or in his feelings is so strong that even in an upright character there is an unconscious tendency to show only the best side or the side which, though not the best, is that which he most likes to see. End quote. We learn early to hide our non-normal selves inside a more presentable skin of pretense and habit. There are times and places where pretense doesn't work, though. For most of us, I've gotten used to being told how I feel when I don't feel that way at all, or equally often told that I can't possibly feel what I do when, accidentally or on purpose, I reveal a reaction that does not fit the neurotypical expectations. This must have happened to me countless times as a small child, and I shudder to think of how thoroughly alienated from my AS self I was by the time I began to be willing to think about sex, about having sexual relations with other people, I mean. True to my little professor AS-ness, I knew about sex from a theoretical standpoint long before I thought of it as something in which I might engage myself. When I did, and this was in the 1960s, a time when having sex was easier than not having sex in the leftist circles my family inhabited, a friend immediately told me how I must feel about the other person involved. I took a minute to consider her prescription and then told her I didn't feel that way at all, and she assumed I was lying. People often assume I am lying when I report objectively on my inner workings, or they think I am putting myself down. The latter reaction infuriates me and many other ASSers who have to put up with the same thing. Instead of taking our words at face value, near-typical listeners ascribe some foreign emotional weight to them. They react to their own assumptions about the meaning behind our words, rather than accepting our words as meaning what we say. This same near-typical insistence on their own emotional makeup works against me and other ASSers in many situations. When I describe something unpleasant, such as a pain I am feeling, my voice does not carry an emotional charge recognizable by neurotypicals. Just as I cannot read between the lines of neurotypical conversation to pick up on the nonverbal signals that form, I'm told, 60% of neurotypical communication, neither can I load my own speech with those invisible-to-me tonalities, backed up by body language, gesture, and who knows what all. I sure don't that would convey my meaning exactly enough for neurotypical comprehension. This can be a real problem when I'm trying to tell a medical doctor how I feel in order to get the treatment I need. A few times in extremis, I have had to resort to acting out, acting hysterical, because I could see my descriptions were too reasonable, too cool, too uncharged with the expected emotional overtones, and as a result, my problem was not being taken seriously. 
When I try to tell someone I love what my love is like, I am heard as denying my love. The first reaction is likely to be, stop putting yourself down, Jane. That tells me I've totally failed, again, to communicate what I feel, how I think, and who I am. If I persist in trying to achieve communication, I am seen as not loving at all. The only other option I've found so far is to lie, pretend, and try to make my imitation of neurotypicalness extend from being my public persona into being a workable private self. That's what I used to do before I decided to stop attempting intimate relationships. The neurotypical world says I'm a failure if I'm alone, but if I'm not alone, I'm not entirely myself. On the job, in the grocery store, doing things with friends, participating in political activism, my neurotypical persona is functional enough in all those situations. Where it's not functional is within a relationship where I'm supposed to be sharing the deepest, truest parts of me. A big part of being AS is experiencing life as a series of failures. Everybody fails now and then at this and that. When the failures begin to form a pattern and that pattern has a name, a history, and a community, then if you're lucky, the failures become material with which to analyze the whys and wherefores. The failures become pieces in a jigsaw puzzle that shows an illuminating picture once we get it all put together. Instead of failing to succeed as what you're not, you can start learning how to succeed as what you are, and how to deal with the fact that the rest of the world will continue to see you as a failure no matter what you do. My emotional equipment works just fine, thanks. The fact that it works in ways that confound the expectations and assumptions of the majority does not mean I have no emotions, or that my emotional reactions, as different as they may be, are wrong. In some ways, my atypical wiring works better than the standard model. Nonviolent tactics are easier for me than for many people because I do not react with fear or hostility to physical aggression. My emotions, especially anger, sometimes get out of hand, it's true, but my intellect is firmly and calmly in control in many situations where neurotypicals are losing it all around me. That's not bragging. It's simply an observation based on experience. Similarly, my anarchism doesn't have to struggle against some of the tendencies or temptations that afflict many neurotypicals. Belonging has no charms for me. And I am immune to what C.S. Lewis calls, quote, that intimate laughter between fellow professionals, which of all earthly powers is strongest to make men do very bad things before they are yet individually very bad men. I'm also obsessively punctual and a perfectionist in my work, which makes me a valuable employee and a real pain in the ass for those I work with on political projects. Neurodiversity One thing we humans all do have in common, as far as I've been able to tell, is the experience of alienation. Everyone has times when she or he feels a split between what's inside and what seems to be required by the outside environment. Most of us, for example, don't behave in quite the same when we are out applying for a job as we do at home. We just know, unless we are 8C, that some behaviors are okay here, but not there. I think all of us benefit from the chutzpah of the people who deliberately challenge social rules about what is, quote, acceptable, unquote. The number or extent of situations and personal attributes that cause us to feel alienated is whittled away by such challenges. Although I've never participated in a gay 
kiss him, and never will, I can see the value of making gay public displays of affection as visible as those between people who happily define themselves as opposites. I will never cut my hair in a mohawk either, nor am I likely to buy myself a man's suit to wear. But I think my way through public space is eased by women who extend the boundaries of what people get more or less used to seeing in our shared geography. Similarly, I think all of us humans will benefit when our societies acquire a wider appreciation of neurodiversity. The assumption of neurouniversality is very like a form of ethnocentricity. If an Anglo person says of another English-speaking person, she has an accent. That Anglo person is assuming her own accent is what's right, the standard against which all others are measured. As Omoja Three Rivers points out in her pamphlet, Quote, Cultural Etiquette, A Guide for the Well-Intentioned, Three Rivers, 1990, page 11. Quote, Everyone speaks with an accent. Unquote. Three Rivers recommends the following as one stop in converting etiquette into understanding. Quote, Examine what you regard as your own culture as if you were a complete stranger to it. If this proves difficult, Find a few people who do not share your values. Ask them to describe your culture to you. Keep quiet and pay attention. Privately imagine yourself to be someone who considers herself different from you. Spend a day seeing the world as they do. Unquote. A researcher named Carol Gray helps parents of AS kids get a kind of backwards look into neurotypical society. Neurotypical people, she notes, take for granted a great many social skills that AS people lack as kids and must acquire, if at all, through a difficult conscious learning process. No wonder we don't perform those social skills as well, and no wonder sometimes we need to make adjustments in our relations to neurotypical society. Temple Grandin, Grandin, 1995, page 139, probably the most widely known and successful autistic person of the day, writes of herself, quote, I know that things are missing in my life, but I have an exciting career that occupies my every waking hour. Keeping myself busy keeps my mind off what I may be missing, unquote. Some of what we may be missing, those of us on the autism spectrum, is the ability to adjust to sensory assaults other people accept as normal. We may need to have information presented to us in a different way. Some things may take us longer, or we may accomplish certain kinds of work faster than anyone else, but be unable to explain why or how. Our strengths and weaknesses are likely to be unusual when compared to the social norm, and sometimes that will cause us problems in working and living comfortably with those who think the norm should be good enough for everybody. I'm reminded now of people, and there really are some, who think a building is wheelchair accessible because there are just a few stairs between the sidewalk and the door. If people on the autism spectrum all came out and worked towards increasing institutional flexibility to the point where our special needs could be accommodated, the world would be a much more comfortable, less alienating place for everyone else as well. Such a world would be one where the individual got to decide whether the lighting in the workplace was impairing her ability to function, where bosses would be expected to negotiate with employees the manner in which information and orders were exchanged where the market would not enforce the notion that being part of a romantically-based couple was the way to become adult, where seeking assistance with certain aspects of daily life was not seen as an admission of incompetence, 
where it would be as normal for children to have different learning styles as it is to have different colors and textures of hair, where everyone would have an accent. Not everyone in the autism spectrum is going to come out in the immediate future. Not all of us can afford to. One reason I wanted to devote time and energy to writing this essay, though, is that I needed to do some thinking about my own situation. I have it much easier than many of my ASAC internet friends and acquaintances. For a number of reasons, my upbringing was more friendly to someone growing up, quote, odd, unquote, in a society where reactions to oddness range from scorn to hatred. I had a lot of cushions, and I always felt accepted by my family. They gave me a very good start, and my mother continued to help me in many ways until she died in 1995 at the age of 80. For one thing, she taught me how to help her, too. Either because of my, quote, environmental, unquote, good fortune, or because of how my brain developed its helping of genes and chemicals, or because the one reinforced the other, I am less severely affected by AS in daily functioning than are many others. My life might look strange to most people if I let them see what it's really like, but I managed to pass as normal or nearly normal without exceeding my reserves too often. Nevertheless, I am bothered by the fact that one element keeping me and lots of others from coming out universally about our place on the autism spectrum is the way society withholds legitimacy from experiences that are not officially reviewed. It's hard enough for people to grasp the distinction between psychology and neurology, hence the continued existence of the, quote, blame the mother, unquote, school of thought about autism. If you want someone to make that shift in their thinking, you better have some proof to offer. Why should they expend the energy if it's all just a bunch of hot air? Without the, quote, legitimacy, unquote, of an officially bestowed diagnosis, I pretty much just have to suck it up when people misread me and my life. I can't give or expect them to have time for an explanation based on nothing but my own experience, research, and exploration with others. Or can I? Maybe this is a way to work towards another kind of shift, of notions about expertise. With the pooling of experiences and information on the internet, maybe we can begin to develop a new set of expectations about who knows what and how much different kinds of knowledge are worth. Instead of top-down expertise, we can exercise bottom-up expertise. Sounds good to me, from my point of view. P.S. I wrote this essay in 1998. About 18 months later, in autumn 1999, I met with a doctor at the Oregon Health Sciences University who confirmed my self-diagnosis. And uh, there's works cited, which I already mentioned, uh, one of them uh, by Amoja Three Rivers, Cultural Etiquette, A Guide for the Well-Intentioned, and Temple Grandin's Thinking in Pictures. And that uh, footnote, number six, uh, about hollow core versus solid core. Uh, anyway, I, I'll read that as promised. AS folks tend to take things literally. This means, for one thing, that some ASers are seen as having no sense of humor because they don't get jokes that depend on non-literal interpretations of words. I, like a large minority of ASers, greatly enjoy that kind of jokes. So it took me a while to recognize that the cause of certain recurrent communication problems was my tendency to be more literal than people expected me to be. Analogously, I have trouble with people perceiving me as judgmental. They ascribe the normal neurotypical dichotomy of value-devalued to my observations and assume I am stating a value judgment when I am merely making an observation. 
another form of being literal. For example, I'm told my reference in fifth paragraph of this article to solid core and hollow core types of people sounds judgmental, because the reader's assumption is that I must mean to value solid and devalue hollow. No such judgment was meant or implied. All right, well, I'm glad I read that footnote. That's pretty good. So I hope you enjoyed that lovely article by Jane Meyerding, vintage 1998. Certainly some things have changed. Our relationship to the internet has obviously changed. That uh, bit at the end, I feel like sounds a trifle optimistic and and naive to us in our current age of fake news and all the scams and everything else that proliferate on the internet. Obviously, that needs some work. (laughs) We haven't quite got there. But I do feel that those who choose to take kind of a more rigorous approach to fact-checking It's out there. The information is out there. You can find out. Other than that, you know, I feel like the article is just as timely now as it was then. I feel like it really describes for a lot of us our experience of thinking, you know, sure, we're all one species. We're all kind of wired more or less the same, unless there's some kind of trauma involved, to finding out that, nope. Uh, We are genuinely wired differently, and the way we perceive things and the way we express ourselves, the way we like to spend our time is not going to be the same for everyone, and that's okay. You are not alone. So thank you uh, once again to Jane Meyerding for her beautiful essay and for allowing me to read it on the podcast She's a lovely human being. I've had the chance to interact with her online quite a few times. And she is just as terrific and bright and compassionate as she sounds like she is in this article. For the rest of you, thank you for listening. And thank you for being Actually Autistic. Autistic.